read through Acts 23, and I read it in a way that made me think of an Oreo cookie, and I don't know why, but hopefully you'll see what that means, because why do you buy, and Jess and I had a little argument about this, but why do you buy an Oreo cookie? Say it again. The cream, the fluff, the stuff, right? Who li- I don't even like the cookie part so much. It's the, it's the middle stuff, right? So when you read Acts 23, it reads like an Oreo cookie. There's junk, and then there's the good stuff, and then there's more junk. Okay? I know this is my opinion, but it's my opinion. So that's how we're going to run with it this morning. We're going we're to focus in on some of the junk that's happening, how Paul addresses it, but then when we get to the middle, it's, it's really good stuff, and we'll spend time there as well. But let's go back to Acts 22, read verse 30, and then we'll jump and go right into, just kind of sets the scene again, and then we'll read verses 1 through 10 of uh, chapter 23 together, and we'll jump into it. So Acts 22, verse 30, the end of the last chapter said, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, meaning the tribune, the Roman guard, unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them, going right into chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? This is off to a good start, isn't it? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Craziness. A lot going on. But let's take a look. Again, there's three perspectives. One, you got the Roman perspective, right? You have the Romans that say, we need answers. This guy is being charged with crimes, yet there's been no accusation there's been no legal counsel there's been no uh, eyewitness testimony to anything to say that he's actually broken legitimate crimes and so we need answers immediately then you have the jewish perspective they're saying the law's broken he defiled the temple we want justice now but they can't come together the romans don't have enough answers or clear answers as to why he needs to be put to death and then you have paul's perspective so I'm just here serving the Lord. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just speaking about Jesus. And that's his perspective. But Paul begins by claiming a good conscience before the Lord. And that gets him smacked in the mouth. 
Why? Why would that cause the high priest to say he needs to be smacked? Just by claiming he has a good conscience. Well, from the Jew's perspective, should he be allowed to claim a good conscience? No, he broke the Mosaic law. He's been speaking against the law. He's preaching Jesus and God to the Gentiles, saying they don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. And now he's bringing Jews into the inner parts of the temple. He cannot stand here and say he has a good conscience. And then Paul responded. <laughs> I think like any of us would. I don't hold this against Paul. Would you? Would you get smacked in the mouth and not have a response? Because one, Paul understands, look, I've not been accused of any crime. And yet here I am being treated like a criminal. And yet nothing's been said to the contrary. Second, the command of the high priest. The high priest should be the most reasonable man in the room, right? And yet he says, quiet him down. Now, Paul claimed, you know, he took responsibility and said, look, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was the high priest. So one, we could take that as Paul's been out of the game, so to speak, the Pharisee game for about 20 years. He may not have recognized Ananias as the high priest. Two, this was a meeting called by the Roman council and, and he brought them together. So it wasn't maybe a, a formal Jewish gathering. So maybe the high priest wasn't wearing his high priest garb to identify him as such. I, we don't know and we're not told, but the reality is what Paul does is he says, one, I'm calling you to the mat saying, you're going to break the law and accuse me of breaking the law? How is this okay? But he says, you know what? You're right. Scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 22 not to speak ill of those in authority over us. So therefore, I take responsibility for that. So here's where I want to just pause. Verse 1 is one of these few verses we're going to focus in on. Because Paul stands up and says, brothers, I can stand here in good conscience. That's what a lot of people will have a problem with. Are we supposed to listen to our conscience? You ever been told that? What does your conscience tell you? And a lot of Christians will get offended. How dare you? I listen to the Holy Spirit. But here Paul is saying, I stand here in good conscience. So we need to spend time on that because I want to clarify a lot of what that means. But the reality is at some point in your life, somebody's going to come against you, if not already, or earlier this morning or this past week. And they're going to hate you. They're going to revile you. They're going to talk smack about you. They're just, they're going to do anything they can to bring up your past against you. And so could you stand in any circumstance with others accusing you of this or that, saying this or that, doing this or that, and go, you know what? Before the Lord, I have a clear conscience. Is that okay to say? So let's take a look at that. First, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, it says, We must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. But we're going to use the 18th century German philosopher. You ready for a little philosophy class? Immanuel Kant, if you know that name at all. This is how he defines conscience. He says it's a feeling of pleasure or displeasure associated with myself that arises when I comply or don't comply with moral principles. Do you follow that? It's pleasure or displeasure based on my reaction 
to whatever moral principles I stand on. Okay, we're going to clarify this. Hang in there. It, he also says, it motivates me to act in one sense rather than the other when the feeling accompanies the contemplation of a certain course of action. So that's why a lot of people will say, I'm just going to listen to my conscience and do what it tells me to do, regardless of the circumstances, maybe even regardless of the moral foundation I'm supposed to stand on. Okay, now let's clarify this. Simply put, your conscience is an internal judge that will either accuse you or excuse you based on the foundation on which you stand. Now, I'm not saying that's Christian or, or secular. It's just, it is what it is. Okay, so quick example. You go to the store, maybe as a kid. Anybody ever... Uh, taken anything from the store before? Anybody snuck a candy bar in their pocket and walked out? A little five-finger discount? Okay. Now, your conscience is going to say, I'm okay with that. You broke the law, but your conscience might be, I feel no guilt. I'm okay. I enjoyed the candy bar. I'm carrying on with life. Or you're going to walk out, get home, and you're going to look at that candy bar and go, I shouldn't have done this. This was wrong. And then eat the candy bar. But still feel guilty about it. Or so guilty, you're going to go and return it or admit to it, right? You see what conscience does? It judges the action once it's already been taken based on the moral foundation you stand on. So, Scripture does speak to various kinds of conscience. Number one, there's what's called a defiled conscience. A defiled conscience simply means your conscience is becoming polluted. Polluted by what? Simply put, that slippery slope of sin, say that ten times fast, as you continue down this road to justify one sin, oh, it wasn't bad, I don't feel bad, I don't feel guilty, do it again, do it again. The severity gets deeper, bigger, 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 until the point where you got to do it realizing like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm involved in this and my conscience never accused me of wrongdoing. How did I get here? That's a polluted conscience that's going to happen over time. See, scripture says in Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're polluted. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. That's a defiled conscience. One that says, I know God. I may even stand on that moral foundation, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay. Next step down the road, you might develop a seared conscience. Now, for you barbecuers out there, you ever sear your meat? Chicken, your steak, your burgers, you sear it. Why do you sear it? Master chef? For that crunch, for that the crunch, but what, what does it do when you sear it, right? It's going to hold everything in. You lock in the flavor. You lock in the juice. You lock in everything that's there, and it provides that nice crunch and, and taste and flavor that you want, right? So what would a seared conscience mean? Well, we take that, that term, and it means to cauterize. 
I think we'd be more familiar with food and searing our food than maybe cauterizing a wire, right? But what do you do when you cauterize something? You seal it, right? And so that means nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out. So a seared conscience is a loss of sensitivity to what is right or wrong. You've gone down this slope so far that you get to the point where you don't know what's right or wrong anymore. You just do what you do. You don't think twice about it. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Meaning they'll just lie and tell you whatever you want to hear because they don't care about the moral justification or anything to it. They're seared. They're locked into that way. Let's keep going down that road. Then what do you get to? Well, you get to the final straw, an evil conscience. Now, an evil conscience takes it to the next step. You feel no remorse, no guilt. Your conscience will approve your actions even when you willingly break the law or go against what God says is right. Willingly, knowingly doing what's wrong and your conscience is clear. That's an evil conscience. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So is an evil conscience death? Is an evil conscience the point of no return? No, we just said it right here. You can be washed of that. And that's what regeneration in Christ is. When you come to Jesus and you, you sit before his word and you sit before him and you cry out to him and pray to him and repent of your sins, you're washed clean of that conscience only to be made right again to stand before God with a clear, good conscience. You following me so far? Now, remember, this is what I want to point out. Your conscience is just that internal judge. It's going to accuse you or excuse you. How do you feel when you do right? How do you feel when you do wrong? Is that the Holy Spirit? It can be. It can be. We'll get to that in a minute. So when Paul is standing before this group and he's saying, I can stand here with a good conscience, a clear conscience. And he got smacked because he believed that everything that he was doing was in accordance with God's word, doing what he was told to do by Jesus himself, preaching the gospel to Jews, to Gentiles, to everybody he possibly could. There was nothing that he knew of in his mind that he had done wrong or disobedient so he could stand on the foundation of God's commands and word and say, I'm clear, I'm good. Whatever you want to hold against me, whatever you want to say to me, I'm good by the Lord's standards. But this is what Paul clarifies, and let's make this very clear to us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. This is not about perfection. This is not about attaining a perfect life to say, oh, I'm good, I'm better, I'm, I'm clean, I'm clear of any wrongdoing ever again. No, Paul even said, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, stating, 
my conscience is clear. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So you can be okay with your conscience. You can be okay, but remember, God ultimately judges. Your conscience does not judge. It's an internal indicator upon the moral foundation on what on which you stand. So if we are pursuing Christ, if we're pursuing obedience to him and doing what we are supposed to do according to his word, then we can stand clear, good, and right before God, no matter what the world says. Is with me so far? That's what a conscience is, and it's okay to listen to that conscience. And let it direct you, let it uh, move you, let it change you a little bit, that if I'm doing something and I feel guilty, if I feel wrong, then maybe I'd come back to God's word and go, okay, what, what, what did I do? <laughs> and then repent, give it to the Lord, and immediately take action to say, I need to be good and right with the, with the Lord. So therefore, we get into a good conscience. As we abide in God's word, we gain a deeper understanding of God's will and an understanding as to what he determines as right and wrong. And we respond accordingly. It's what he determines as right or wrong, not us. He's the creator. He is Lord. He is judge. We don't get to do what we want to do and then justify it or rationalize it. No, it's up to the Lord and we're obedient to him. We are his servants. But a good conscience before the Lord is going to provide you a lot of things. Let me give you three. A good conscience will provide you these three things that I think we all can agree we'd like to have more of. Number one, it fortifies you. Strengthens you. To stand your ground on God's word, no matter what society is saying about you or, or what you declare from God's word to glorify God, whatever the world throws at you, you can stand firm, strong, fortified, confident, courageous. I think scripture talks about that quite often, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may able, be able to stand firm. You can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So one, it fortifies you. A good conscience, number two, removes fear. Very similar, right? If I can stand fortified and strong and courageous, it's all at the same exact time going to remove any fear of what man may say or what man may do or what my circumstances may dictate to me if it's not coming directly from an individual. It removes any fear. The world will be stacked against us, hate us, revile us, accuse us, and may even bring up our past against us. How many times has the enemy done that to you? Remember when you used to do this? Remember when you used to be involved in this? Remember when you used to say these kind of things? The enemy's going to say, that's who you are, but you can say, no, I don't think so, because I'm fortified and strong that Christ forgave me of those sins. That's not who I am. My identity is in Christ. So I can stand here fortified, strong, and courageous without fear because I know what God's word says. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. I love that. Write that down. Psalm 118 
verses 6 and 7. Psalm 118, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Finally, it fortifies you, it removes fear, and in that sense, gives you peace. It gives you peace. Warren Wiersbe says this, a restlessness of an uneasy conscience divides the heart and drains the strength of a person so that he is unable to function at his best. Now listen to this. He says, how can we boldly witness for Christ if conscience is witnessing against us? So does that mean there's no hope? No, if your conscience is witnessing against you, then you have all the power in the world, according to God's word, to stand against that, give those things to the Lord, confess your sins, and then stand right, fortified, firm, no fear, in peace, saying none of that is me anymore, and move forward in the grace of God to have a good, clear conscience. So in a world that calls evil good and good evil, we need every ounce of strength, courage, and peace to stand on God's principles and be the light we're called to be. Yet we need to do it with love and a good, clear conscience. Amen? Amen. That's verse one. Okay, let's move on. So here's Paul speaking up, providing the real reason now that he's on trial. In all this chaos that's starting to brew again, he speaks out. The next thing he really says is in verse six. He says, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So Paul stands here and says, look, you don't have anything against me. Let me make this clear. You might hate me. You may want me dead, but let's really talk about what's on trial, what you are really against, which is the hope of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that he provides because he himself is alive. He says, that's what's on trial. The heart of the Christian faith. If there is no resurrection, Christianity doesn't exist. And Paul is saying, that's what you have a problem with. He says, and the council leaps into another uproar. Because the council was divided, right? You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees. And the problem is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in any of that. So therefore, you see the, the division that Paul understood was in the room. Now, maybe by the, the wisdom that God granted him in that moment to say, I'm going to say this and let them figure it out. Because if I'm on trial, I've got a good conscience. I'm clear. I'm innocent. Let's kind of put their heart and mind on trial. And he offers them something to kind of talk about. But so much so that they get violent. And the Romans, Romans are seeing there and going, okay, here we go again. We're not going to have this happen. So they go down, they pull Paul out before he literally tells us that he was going to be ripped to shreds. And he puts him back into custody until he could figure out what is really going on. What is the problem here? So there's that top layer cookie. We got through the junk. He gets smacked in the mouth. He's arrested. It's a, he's... He's just proclaiming Jesus Christ and there's uproar, there's violence. But now we get to the, the stuff, the good stuff, the double stuff. Let's look at verse 11. In verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. One sentence, one statement, but in the very presence of Jesus himself, Paul is given encouragement. He's given comfort, saying, well done. You're speaking the truth about who I am and what I offer. You are being obedient to the word. Don't let all this met excuse me, madness and violence and everything else dissuade you or discourage you in the heart of what you're going through. Take courage. But you hear what Jesus said to him? Well done, but there's more to do. You must also testify in Rome. So Jesus in that moment gives him a beautiful promise saying, I know what you wanted to do and we're going to get you there. That's the fluff. That's the good stuff, isn't it? So now we get to the bottom cookie. Why didn't God provide him a miracle and let the chains fall off? Where's the earthquake and angelic presence to open up the gates and just let him walk out? I mean, didn't that happen for Peter? Didn't that happen multiple times throughout scripture? Why, why not now? Why does Paul have to remain in custody get smacked in the mouth, get beat and left for dead multiple times. You want the deep answer? Because God said so. <laughs> because this is what God had ordained for his purpose in his time, in his way. Because God is working. He's moving. He's working things out because if Paul had just been released and allowed to go on his way, he could have gone to the coast, got on a boat, and went to Rome. But there was something else that needed to happen. People he needed to speak to where he was at. So why I say that is, don't forget the promises of God. Don't get so caught up in your circumstances and get so inward focused that you lose sight of what God is doing. And he's always working. And he may need you in that moment. We don't like it. Did Paul like it? No, of course not. But he may need you in that moment because he's working on something over here. Because when you are released and his promise comes true, he's going to bring you into a position to continue to proclaim his name the way he wants you to. Where he wants you to. To who he wants you to. That's what's going on. If we are consistently seeking the Lord, we don't have to worry about our circumstances. I know we do, because we're human. We can look at it, and we can get bummed out, and we can get focused on it, but if somebody or you can draw back enough and go, okay, Lord, ask, what's going on? Speak to me. I'm hurting. I'm tired. I just got smacked in the mouth by more debt. I just got smacked in the mouth because my boss said I did something wrong. I just got smacked in the mouth with, with all this stuff that's happening in my family and I don't know what to do. God is saying, take courage. Take courage. You may not understand it right now, but there's a, the reason is coming. Why 1 Peter 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, his will, his time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
So here Jesus gives Paul a promise. So you must testify also in Rome. You must testify. You know what the word must is translated as? It's necessary. It's going to happen. So when Jesus told him the promise back in Acts 9, Paul had just given his life to the Lord. He's in that transition moment. And when he told uh, the prophet to go over and speak to Paul and give him his, uh, his direction, and this is what Jesus said about Paul, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And now Jesus promises him, you're fulfilling that call. You're being obedient to that, that commission. So now you must go and testify in Rome. Psalm 115 verse 9 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. Faith in what God is doing. So let's do this. I want to read through the, the bottom cookie. You see how this story plays out. You'll see what I'm, I'm talking about in regards to how amazing of a, a movie this could actually be if it's done properly. But beside that point, let's pick up in verse 12 and we'll kind of read through the end. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he even comes near. See why Jesus needed to come alongside and say, take courage. Some stuff is going to happen. It's not done. There's more that's going to take place, but you're going to get to Rome. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves to an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night or 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and there he was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. 
Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found out that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have or what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. It's one heck of a bottom piece of cookie. A plot of murder. No more hearings. No more questions. They were done. And they were ready to kill him with 40 men. But look what God did. We're going to protect you with 470 Roman soldiers. And we're going to get you out. Can you imagine that scene? I just imagine 470 soldiers. Think about that. Surrounding Paul. Marching him out in the dead of night to get him out of town. Quite a, quite a picture. So here's what we want to focus on. So the Lord may not want to use the visually miraculous to set us free. But he could use your family. <laughs> See here, the only time in scripture that we hear of Paul's family. His sister lived in the area and, and her son, so Paul's nephew overheard this conversation and and was bold enough to go and tell his uncle unc this is what's going down there's a problem so god will use a variety of ways to get your attention to show us how he is constantly working for those who call on his name for salvation pretty amazing what paul would write to the romans in chapter 8 maybe something we're familiar with and we know that for those who love god and are called according to his purpose all things will work together for good all things will work together for good. Even your circumstance of beating, imprisonment, murderous plot, being smacked in the face, being beaten, left for dead. And there's more to come. We'll get to the shipwreck. We'll get to more prison time. A lot of stuff is still going to happen. But with everything exposed, Claudius Lysias the tribune in, in Jerusalem sends him on to the governor for more questioning and protection. But even you, you heard the Roman tribune declare Paul's innocence. Verse 29. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. It's amazing how God had been working, and this is what I want to show us. Sometimes we, we need to remember God's promises, right? God's provision and protection, especially with the Romans, the ones who are in charge of, of everything in life and society. So let's take a look back really quick. Acts 13, if you remember Sergius Paulus in Cyprus, the first missionary journey, he comes to faith in Jesus. In, in Acts 16, the Roman magistrates in Philippi apologized to Paul and Silas for beating them and imprisoning them. Once they found out they were Roman citizens. Gallio in Corinth in Acts 18 refused to judge the Jews' complaints against Paul. 
The riot in Ephesus in Acts 19, protecting Paul from danger and Roman authority. In Acts 23, what we just read, Claudius Lysias in Jerusalem, innocence presumed. If we jump ahead to Acts 24, Governor Felix is going to be sensitive to Christianity and wants to hear more what Paul has to say. In Acts 25 and 26, the, the new governor, Festus, and, and Paul is brought before King Agrippa to share his story once again. And again, both of those men find no guilt worthy of death. You see what God is doing? He's been working. Sometimes we get so caught up in our circumstance, we forget what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. It's a beautiful picture and good reminders we need. So what do we need in life when faced with trials? What did you hear today? What do we need in life when trials come up? And, and, and irregardless of the intensity of the trial, the, the straw that broke the camel's back is you were just, you had a day and you were cooking dinner and you dropped it on the floor. What does that do to you? Where does that put your mind? You had a bad day at work and you bring that home with you and, and maybe explode at, at one of your children. Is what they did or said necessary of your explosion? No, but it was all kind of building up, wasn't it? Or maybe something more intense, whatever it might be. And Joe's sharing his circumstances and shared with us about what's been going on with him. And, but praise God for the circumstance. So regardless of the intensity of what's happening, what do you need when you're faced with these trials? One, the humility to cry out to God. Have some humility to cry out to God and recognize that you can't handle this. And when you're tired and worn out and don't want one more thing to take place, cry out to God in that moment. Isn't that the entire book of Psalms? Oh, it's poetic. Oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's sweet and innocent. No, it's, it's filled with tears and distress and anxiety, but yet all pointed at the one who determines our actions, determines our course of life. Cry out to God in prayer and praise. You can take us back to Paul and Silas in prison, right? They were beat down, put in the inner prison, and what did they do? They praised God. They worshiped in that moment. Number two, remember the promises of God. Remember his provision. Remember what he's brought you through. Knowing it's the same God. And whatever you might see coming up, maybe the storms are brewing. I mean, I, I did. I went home yesterday and I was doing a little more yard work. And all of a sudden I look up and go, that cloud's a little dark. Something's coming. And then all of a sudden, just the heavens opened up. Literally, it was crazy, wasn't it? So something's coming, and you know that, and you see it. What are you going to do in that moment? What are you going to do in that moment so you don't respond negatively? You don't let that conscience accuse you when you've done nothing wrong. To stand before the Lord and say, I need you. I see this coming. This has happened. I'm just going to fall into you right now. Because I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else I can do. And be okay with that. Because your conscience is clear. 
Your conscience is good because you've been consistently seeking the Lord, worshiping the Lord, praising God, crying out to him when you need help. And be obedient to him so you can stand that when that storm comes, okay, it's going to come. But my God has a plan. My God works everything out for good because he has called me one of his own.